there. You're listening to the Collective Church Podcast, recorded live at Collective Church in Roanoke, Texas, with co-lead pastors Courtney Clark and Megan Lawton. Enjoy the sermon. Um, So we're starting our five-part series on parables this week. So I will be doing the next five weeks, um, and we're going to just talk about parables, which are stories that we've probably all heard um, or even have memorized to some extent, um, or at least could recognize kind of as we read them. And um, I don't know about you, but growing up in the church um, and having so many experiences with these passages, they kind of come with a lot of baggage. And what I want to do with this series is kind of unpack some of that and see the text just kind of for what it is. Um, See the text as the first century Jewish audience would have seen it. What is Jesus really saying here if we strip away all of the kind of interpretations that we've um, kind of been drilled into our head our entire lives, or at least in my head um, growing up in the church and just kind of dig into some of those things. So kind of a little bit of information about parables. Jesus taught primarily in parables, but he didn't invent the parable. This is a style of teaching that Jewish rabbis have used for generations before Jesus and continue to use still to this day after Jesus. Uh, Jesus, um, I've left my Bible. Please hold. Uh, Mark 4, verse 33, um, tells us that Jesus uses parables pretty often. So if you'll turn there with me, I don't think this is in your bulletin, um, but I will read it for you. So it says, with many similar parables, Jesus spoke to the word to them as much as they could understand. He didn't say anything to them without using a parable. But when he was alone with his disciples, he explained everything. So Jesus um, is teaching in this way. And we kind of, with this verse, we kind of get the sense that there's some kind of ambiguity to it. So even the disciples themselves, though they're living with Jesus, they're spending time with him, they kind of have questions at the end of the day. Um, And his audience doesn't get the answer to those questions. We don't get the answer to those questions. They weren't written down for us to hear. So we're kind of left on our own to kind of fend for ourselves and figure out what's being said here, what's the intention, what's the purpose with this. And scholars have spent, I mean, thousands of years trying to figure that out, right? And that's why we're still here. That's why we're doing this Um, still to this day. We're trying to dig in and find out what did Jesus teach? What what was it that he was expecting us to get out of these, his words, um, out of his life and his ministry? The modern modern church has really kind of turned parables into allegories, meaning that um, each person, each subject in these parables is given a meaning kind of in a broader sense. And typically, the way that the modern church reads these stories, Jesus or God is placed somewhere in the story. So I'm thinking specifically of the prodigal son, which is the series that we just went through with Chris, where she talked about the parable of the prodigal son. And in that story, the father often represents God, kind of as the way that it's taught. But Chris talked to us about maybe that doesn't necessarily have to be the case for the story to still hold meaning. And last week in her final final session series, final sermon in that series, um, she talked about maybe we could see ourselves in the Father and what does that meaning look like? What does that mean for us? And I would argue that putting myself in the Father's shoes in that story actually gave the story more meaning for me um, than putting the Father there. 
And I, I do want to say that I don't think there's necessarily one right or wrong way to kind of read parables. I think there are a lot of things that we can get out of these stories. Um, and Jesus obviously had some sort of intention. Uh, as we see, he tells the disciples like, hey, this is what I meant by that, right? So he has a purpose here. Um, but I don't, I don't think there's necessarily one right or wrong way. But something that we do need to remember is that parables have an, a purpose. They weren't designed to just be good stories. They were designed to provoke and to challenge. And this is the way that Jewish rabbis have always used them. It's a teaching method. They're trying to take something that's this big, broad thing and bring it down in a way that people can relate, that they can understand, that they can see themselves in the story. And we're seeing first century ideas turned into these parables because that's something that the first century Jewish audience would have understood. Uh, but we don't necessarily have that context. So we have to do some history. We have to do some research to figure out what is the context? What does this mean for their lives so that we can look at it and how does it, what does it mean for our lives? So Amy Gillivine, who is a jo uh, Jewish scholar, says this about parables. It says, where'd it go? Sorry, bear with me one second. She says, reducing parables to a single meaning destroys their aesthetic as well as ethical potential. This surplus of meaning is how poetry and storytelling work, and it is all to the good. So we kind of get this idea again that each parable has multiple, is going to leave multiple impressions with whoever's listening based on their own life experience, based on where they see themselves in the story, based on where they are in their life, where they are in their journey with their faith. Are they still angry? Are they still learning? Have they heard none of this before? Are they just seeing it with fresh eyes? They're going to have a very different impression than someone who's heard this thousands and thousands of times and immediately jumps to conclusions on what's being said here. So again, there's not necessarily one right or wrong way to see these passages, but there are key things that we need to remember. Parables have a purpose. They don't just mean something, they do something. They remind, they provoke, they refine, they confront, and they disturb. So we're gonna take a look at our first parable today. There, there's three versions of this parable. I'm just gonna read one. Um, you can kind of look through. They're all very similar. They're all in your bulletin for you, but I'm gonna be reading the version from Luke. So it says, he said, therefore, what is the kingdom of God like, and to what shall I compare it? It is like a grain of mustard seed that a man took and sowed in his garden, and it grew and became a tree, and the birds of the air made nests in its branches. So a lot of you, um, at least for me, when I hear the phrase mustard seed, my brain is like, oh, I know what this is. I know what we're talking about. <laughs> so a lot of evangelical interpretations of this text um, and kind of as we'll find out, a lot of parables are unintentionally anti-Judaism in kind of how they're viewed. And we can kind of go more into that as we go along if you'd like, but we're, um, I, I think it's important for us to remember that Jesus is Jewish. He didn't come to fix Judaism and provide them a better way or a right way. He came as a Jewish man to speak to a primarily Jewish audience, to challenge them, while still maintaining respect for Jewish practice. So some of the ways that we view this passage um, are unintentionally saying like, Judaism was wrong, here's a better way, this is what Jesus is saying and how we fix it. Um, but there's also still, like I said, a lot of baggage that also comes with this passage. So there's a couple of other things that I wanna get out of the way before we really dive headfirst into this. And I'm gonna give you a minute to kind of share some of your thoughts too. But um, so let's remember that most 
parables have kind of an allegorical meaning to them um, as we interpret them today. But there's really no reason to presume when I hear the word mustard seed, I immediately go to faith, um, which is a reference to a different verse. Um, but that's where my brain goes. And there's really no reason Jesus doesn't give us any indication that that's exactly what he's talking about here. There's no reason to presume that a mustard seed represents faith, that the tree represents the church and the birds represent people of all different nations, right? Um, if you grew up in the church, that's kind of where your brain goes. Um, but there's nothing indicating that that's exactly what Jesus is saying here. So let's set all of that aside, if that's where your brain is right now, and just kind of look at the words on the page. Um, namely, just because the first century Jewish audience doesn't have the context of Jesus that we do. They thought Jesus was a rabbi, he was a good teacher, um, he was a great person, they loved being around him, but they didn't know that he was gonna die and be res resurrected in three days. I, some of them probably assumed that he was gonna start some sort of a revolution um, and kind of overthrow life as they knew it, but they didn't know what they would that that would look like, and they didn't know that Jesus necessarily was the Messiah. There might've been some inklings, there might've been some suspicion, but I don't think they really truly knew that. They wouldn't have the perspective that we have to immediately put Jesus in these stories and say, oh, you're talking about yourself. You're talking about faith and, your, and you and who you are and the stories that we're gonna learn about you. So um, some scholars also kind of talk about the mustard seed as being unclean. And this is where we kind of get into that anti-Judaism perspective. This is actually an interpretation that I had never heard before until I started looking into this. So if some of you grew up with this kind of tradition and wanna speak more on that, please feel free. Um, but it talks about the mustard seed being unclean, that it's like a weed um, that causes problems in some cases. Um, and there are, there are mustard seed plants that, are wild, that grow in the wild, but that doesn't necessarily make it a weed. Um, and then there's, they say that there's something in Jewish law saying that you're not supposed to grow two plants together in one space. Um, so there, that's kind of where this unclean interpretation comes from, I think. But again, going back to Amy Gillivine, who's a Jewish scholar, she says that, um, Mustard seed, whether it's grown wild or planted in a garden, is still beneficial. It still has a lot of medicinal uses, herbal uses, and also tastes good. There's no reason to assume that at any point in Jewish history would it be considered unclean. Um, it's still available and used today and was used at this time period for a lot of different things. And she also says that there is nothing indicating that you can't grow different plants in a garden together in Jewish law. Um, so. I, some of these interpretations, I think, are coming from people who don't have, uh, don't, aren't practicing Jewish members of faith. And so they're seeing these different texts and they're kind of reading a lot into it. Um, I, so like I said, I didn't grow up with that interpretation, so I don't know too terribly much about it. Did any, have any of you heard that before? No. Okay, it was kind of everywhere on the internet when I like looked up, so I just Googled like, what does this mean? Uh, just to see like, what do people have to say? And like the first several articles came up with that and I had never heard that before. So I just thought it was interesting. Um, and she talked about it in her book that I read about this specific passage. So first I wanna look at what is a mustard seed? Um, and what have you heard about mustard seeds? So I'm gonna give the floor to you. What do you know about a mustard seed? They're very tiny, yes. And what does a mustard seed, like, when you plant it, what does it turn into? Mustard. mustard. <laughs> okay. I know nothing about plants. I have killed every plant that I've ever planted, so this is just what I found on the internet. Um, so, yes, um, kind of the, like 
the way that I grew up was like a mustard seed was like the smallest seed possible and it grows into this like ginormous tree and it's like this big huge powerful changing process and that's really cool. Uh, at least that's what I was taught growing up. But Google says that the mustard <laughs> seed is not the smallest seed, that there are actually two other seeds that are smaller and mustard seeds don't grow into a very large tree. They grow into like a medium sized bush, um, which is still, I mean, I guess pretty big considering the seed is really small, but it's not this like miraculous ginormous transformation <laughs> that I like thought that it was. Um, and then again, to kind of address the before, it's not a weed. It's, um, it has a lot of medicinal and herbal properties that are still valuable to us even today. So um, I do want to note that all of the presentations of this parable are a little different. And so scholars have used the difference in language de to debate the meaning of this text. And one thing that they use is the difference between, in a couple of versions, it says that the seed was planted, some said it was tossed, some said that it turns into a tree, some says that it turns into a plant with fruit. Um, it's kind of, they all look a little different. And you can kind of look through those in your bulletin if you would like. Um, and, but there's just kind of as an aside, there are a lot of reasons for these minor differences. Um, one being mostly that each book was written at a different time period by a different person. So Luke, for example, was written um, by someone who didn't have an eyewitness account to the life of Jesus. And um, he wrote down all of his texts and his book based off of conversations with people and then what was already written down from other places. And then we have Mark and Matthew, which are the other people who record this parable, they could have written down the version that they liked best. There's nothing to indicate that Jesus only said this one time. Um, again, parables were teaching methods that they used a lot and good storytellers tell their stories in ways that are um, curated to the audience that they're speaking to. So he could have said, some, said it one way to a Jewish audience and said it a different way to a Greek audience. Or he could have said it one way to the disciples and said it a different way when they were out in public with other people. And maybe Matthew and Mark just decided, I liked that version, so I'm gonna write it down. Or maybe they just didn't remember exactly what was said, so they wrote it down how the, they best remembered it, right? There's, there's a lot of reasons that the t the, all of the gospels are different, um, just all across the board, not just with the parables. So uh, what if, instead of looking at this kind of through the lens of this tiny seed that grows into a ginormous tree, if we just strip all of that away, strip away the history, strip away the kind of like, mindset that we put ourselves into um, where this automatically is assumed to be talking about faith and we just read it for the words on the page. What do you see? What are the words saying here? Can somebody tell me in your own words what are the words on the page? Absolutely, yeah. So um, one thing that parables do is they provoke, right? And so I want us to remember that as we're digging into this. It's this, it is a very beautiful thing when you take something small and it turns into something big. Even if it is a medium-sized bush or a giant tree, wherever you want us to picture that in your mind, that is a really beautiful thing to take something so small and plant it in the ground and it grows into something larger than we could have imagined. But that doesn't necessarily provoke or challenge us. So what is Jesus getting at? What is he trying to challenge his listener with, with this story? I want us to remember that the story doesn't stop with seeds and a tree or a bush or however you want to picture it. It mentions birds. So 
Before we can talk too much about the birds, I want us to look at old, the Old Testament and see what the Old Testament has to say about birds and trees. So we're gonna look at books that most people don't talk about because they're weird. Um, we're gonna look at Ezekiel chapter 31 and Daniel chapter four. So the, both of these passages talk about birds and trees um, and both of these passages associate birds and trees with fallen empires. So we're gonna look at Ezekiel 31 first versus verse three. I don't think this is in your bulletin. We're gonna start in verse three. So it says, consider Assyria once a cedar in Lebanon with beautiful branches overshadowing the forest, it towered on high, its top above the thick foliage. So this is um, saying Assyria is like a cedar, a large tree, right? And we're gonna skip down to verse six and it says, all the birds of the air nested in its boughs, all the beasts of the field gave birth under its branches, all the great nations lived in its shade. So again, we're seeing birds living underneath the shade and the shelter of a very large tree. And this tree is believed to be Assyria. And then we'll skip over to verse 13. It says, all the birds of the air settled on the fallen tree and all the beasts of the field were among its branches. So this is where we get into this tree has fallen, Assyria has fallen, and yet the beasts of the field and the birds of the air have still found a way to nest in it, to find shelter in this tree, even though it's fallen. And then we'll skip over to Daniel chapter four, um, verses 11 through 12. It says this. So um, this is a Nebuchadnezzar is having a dream and he is telling his dream to um, Daniel. And this is what he says about his dream. He says, the tree grew large and strong and its top touched the sky. It was visible to the ends of the, of the earth its leaves were beautiful, its fruit abundant, and on it was food for all. Under it, the beasts of the field found shelter and the birds of the air lived in its branches. From it, every creature was fed. So again, we have this idea of birds finding shelter and animals finding food within a, a tree or underneath a tree in some sense. So then I wanna skip down to verse 20. This is uh, Daniel's interpretation of that dream. He says, the tree you saw, which grew large and strong with its top touching the sky, visible to the whole earth with beautiful leaves and abundant fruit, providing food for all, giving shelter to the beasts of the field and having nesting places in its branches for the birds of the air. You, O king, are that tree. You have become great and strong. Your greatness has grown until it reaches the sky and your dominion extends to distant parts of the earth. So Daniel is saying your dream means that you are that tree. You are the country, um, the country or the empire that the animals and the birds or the people of your nation find shelter and refuge. You are the tree that they've been looking for. Okay, so these, both of these passages are talking about the fall of Babylon or the, a fallen Assyrian empire, empire over to Babylon, excuse me, in which the temple was destroyed. So Judeans would have grown up hearing these stories. They would have known them inside and out. This would have been something that was near and dear to their hearts um, because it affected the way that they lived their lives, uh, even still to this day. Um, and this is a significant part of their history. So one can make the assumption here that Jesus is definitely referencing these passages. Um, they're very similar. Uh, we kind of get, and people knowing this history would have maybe made this jump and said, oh yeah, we're talking about empires falling, which would have gone right in line with their idea that Jesus was gonna start a revolution and kind of overthrow everything, right? This tree, 
this empire that we live under is going to fall and we're going to find a new one that's going to be different and then we're going to find shelter and we're going to find refuge. We're going to find what it is that we've been looking for. And this is particularly appealing to our 21st century lens, um, mostly because we have histories of empires falling and new ones coming to take their place. We have a different lens um, than probably the first century Jewish audience would have on empires and kind of their demise as they fall. So with these texts as background, it seems possible that Jesus really is saying the mustard tree is a kingdom of God and we're, he's welcoming all nations um, kind of as they come naturally through growth rather than annihilation as we see with the fall of Assyria. Um, and the focus of this parable isn't necessarily on the growth of the tree, but more so on the seed. He's equating the kingdom of God to the seed, not necessarily the tree. Though this reference is there, you could argue, um, Jesus's focus is still on the seed. So let's see what um, he has to say about seeds in the Old Testament. So let's look at Psalms 104. Verses, uh, we're gonna start in verse 12. It says this, the birds of the air nest by the waters, they sing among the branches. He waters the mountains from his upper chambers. The earth is satisfied by the fruit of his work. He makes grass grow for the cattle and plants for man to cultivate, bringing forth food from the earth. Wine that gladdens the heart of man, oil to make his face shine, and bread that sustains his heart. The trees of the Lord are well watered, the cedars of Lebanon that he planted. There are the birds make their nests, the stork has its home in the pine trees. The high mountains belong to the wild goats. The crags are a refuge for the conies. So with this particular text as background, if we're talking about birds and trees, we get this kind of hint of divine greatness and how humanity kind of participates in that by the planting of a seed, right? Um, this is still obviously talking about trees and not so much the seed, but there's still that kind of reference. Um, and it gives us a very different background than this fall of Assyria. Um, so which one is Jesus referencing? Kind of how do we parse that out? How do we come to the conclusion here? Mustard seed is um, a curative that's available to everyone. It's something that's used in medicine, um, still to in the Middle East today, um, but something that would have been used a lot probably in this, the first century Jewish audience. Um, it would have been available everywhere. It was a plant that they would have recognized um, growing as they walked through town, as they walked through their own fields, um, something that would have been available as medicine if they went to the doctor. Um, and it was valuable and infinitely valuable. And something about a mustard seed is when you plant a mustard seed, it grows into Yes, probably a medium-sized bush instead of a large tree, but even that medium-sized bush is more than one person can use. And it continues to reproduce and continues to grow. So if the first century Jewish audience is hearing mustard seed, they would have heard of this very infinitely valuable, abundant plant. And that is the picture that they would have had in their head. Not necessarily this small seed that grows into a, this massive tree and the process of that, but more so they would have seen this very, very valuable piece of equipment, of technology for them. And it's something that they use in their daily lives to feed themselves, to help other people, to heal themselves, to heal others. And that's not all. The story goes on and this tree produces mustard seed, yes, in abundance, but it also provides shelter for the birds. And something about birds is we know they find shelter wherever it's available, via it a mighty tree, a medium-sized bush, on your back porch, um, 
shelter is readily available in nature. They don't have to fight over it. They don't have to put bids down on a house in hopes that they get it and pay way more than the house is worth. They just build shelter where it's available, right? And it's, it's there for them and they're cared for in this kingdom of God. The animals, they have the shelter, they have the nurturing, they have the medicine that they need, right? And all seeds, no matter their size, be them small or the smallest seed of all or somewhere kind of on the spectrum, they contain life. They have life inside them and they hold potential for what's to come. Something small, yes, turns into something great, but there's a lot more to it than that. The potential has to be tapped into. The seed can't grow unless it's planted by the gardener or the person who just threw it on the ground or even the bird that carried it, right? It has to be planted. We ha there has to be some sort of participation to some extent. But then you can't just ignore it, but you also can't get overly involved because if you plant a seed in the ground and then dig it up every five minutes, it's not gonna grow. Also, if you ignore it, it's still not gonna grow, right? There's, there's some work um, in kind of finding that balance. But again, the focus isn't on the person that's doing the planting, it's the whole picture. It's the person doing the planting of the seed and the seed growing and becoming shelter for the birds. It's all of it together. So the reader here, I would say, at least in the way that I read it, is being provoked and challenged to find the kingdom of God in nature and how they participate in that, in that bringing of life how they cultivate it, how they care for it, how they spread the wealth of it um, with everyone that might encounter it, be it birds or animals or beasts of the fields along the way. The crop produces more than one person can use. So it's really important for us to remember that when we plant something that's beneficial to us, we don't just hoard it for ourselves. We share it, be it the kingdom of God, be it mustard seed, be it whatever resource you have at your own hand, at your disposal, I would say that Jesus is challenging his listener and the reader here to, to spread the wealth. Don't just hoard it for yourself. Um, it's more than you can use. How can you participate and cultivate nature around you, but also share that with everyone that you encounter? Grace and peace be with you. There are offering boxes in the back if you want to give. This has been the Collective Church Podcast. We post episodes every week on Sundays. If you're interested in supporting our church, you can give at collectivechurch.net slash give. I hope you enjoyed listening.